I really appreciate that so many of our patrons have complimented Casey's hard work on our videos that we're making now. Yes. Yeah. We have been recording video of us recording the episodes. And then we just send it to Casey, wonderful Casey, and she makes the funniest clips for us. She's so good at it. She's so talented. And some people will recognize Casey's name because she's been on the podcast more than once. She Mm -hmm. came on to talk about the Winchester Mystery House with me, which because of Casey, I walk around with the absolute audacity. And the Winchester Mystery House comes up more living in California. Right, right. And so I just drop these facts that are 100% brought to me by Casey. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. My favorite thing that Casey does is always brings a fun twist to the episode. So Winchester Mystery House, she pretended in the beginning that it was all absolutely 100% definitely ghosts and then broke it down. For the next episode, she did the Headless Horseman and she ranked them on how hot they were. Mm, The Mm -hmm. hot Headless Horseman. The hot pumpkins. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm really grateful that people are finding her humor as funny as we do. Yeah, we should bring back the hot pumpkins this Halloween, rating fictional figures based on how hot and spooky they are. Yeah. Okay, as we start covering spooky figures, we'll we'll decide how hot they are. (laughs) Casey and I have very different opinions, so I'm curious to see where you and I land. Ooh, interesting. I feel like sometimes we align so closely and other times we're on opposite ends of the hot pumpkin spectrum. (laughs) Speaking of hot pumpkins, I was grocery shopping at midnight, as everyone knows I Mm -hmm. do, and the pumpkin spice creamer, the non-dairy, like I think it's by Silk or whoever, came out like two weeks ago, and it was restocked at midnight. I bought three of them. Good. I would have bought more, but there were only four on the shelf. And I was like, I will leave one, mm-hmm. one for someone else. <laughs> I've had a couple friends come over and be like, that's a lot of creamer. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine it amongst a mostly empty fridge with like ketchup and creamer. How dare you be correct? Projecting <laughs> what my own fridge looks like. <laughs> Add in an expired thing of, like, strawberries, and that's my fridge. Oh, my fridge is definitely beverages and sauces only. <laughs> I don't even have beverages. I have I have to frequently just be like, I want a fun drink. And then I look, I'm like, okay, water is my fun drink. I didn't plan well. <laughs> we got to get you those crystal light packets that just live in the back of the pantry until yeah. you cannot possibly ignore them any longer and they become a little <laughs> bit solid. Yeah, I used to use the liquid IV ones, but they're just, it's just pure sugar. It's hard to justify. I love those. And I I live under the illusion that they do make me more hydrated. They do help my headaches. I will give them that. Yes. Oh, 100%. Uh, Not sponsored by liquid IV, but if... But God, I wish we were. Hi, liquid IV. If they wanted to. (laughs) Hello, daddy liquid IV. Ooh, daddy liquid IV. Between one sentence and the next, the liquid IV representative mm-hmm. changed their mm-hmm. mind. Oh, absolutely. I ruined that for us hard. <laughs> <laughs> Tracy, you ruined nothing. Let me ruin this conversation. Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. And I'm Tracy Harrison. 
And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Each week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you'd like to support our show, you can think about becoming a patron. You can find us at patreon.com slash willingandfable. We have tons of fun perks, including joining our favorite place on the internet, the Willing and Fable Discord channel. And a huge, huge thank you to our blush of new patrons. We've mm -hmm. had so many fun people joining us over the last little bit. So welcome to Irene D., Song J, Morgan V., Cassidy W., Mark D., and Lee B. We are so gosh darn happy to have you. <laughs> truly, truly happy to have you. Everyone in the Discord is so much fun. You all know I love talking to everyone in the Discord, but also the patrons are the reason we get to do things like pay Casey to make videos for us and improve our equipment. So because of you guys, the show is just getting better and better, and we thank you so much for that. Yeah, we absolutely could not have a podcast without you. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for joining our little Willing and Fable family. We, we adore you, and um, if you are listening to us while you sleep – we're tucking you in it in bed. Mm -hmm. Gently and lovingly. The reason I specifically bring up the tucking people in is because we asked for it and we got it. Mark D emailed us to say that they listen to us while they're falling asleep. Truly, that makes me so happy. Because like I said it before, I only listen to podcasts that I really like to fall asleep because I have to be engaged enough to then distract myself to fall asleep. It's like when you watch TV and fall asleep. So for us to be the ones that tuck people in as they fall asleep is so flattering. We are worthy, direct quote, worthy of <gasps> being on the playlist that they use to fall asleep. They said that they sometimes save the really spooky ones for daytime, which I totally relate to as Same. the person that researches them in the middle of the night. Yeah. <laughs> and And they also said... That they listen to them again the next day. Oh, They have joined the elite crew of also my mother who listens to us to fall asleep. <laughs> I love that, like, counting up in, in listens. Thanks for doing it not once but twice. Mm -hmm. You're a gem. <laughs> <laughs> Another amazing way to help Willing and Babel is to support the folks who support us. Greenleaf Geek is partnering with us again, making our nerdy little hearts... First with joy. This year, Leah is releasing Greenleaf Geek adventure calendars again. <laughs> <laughs> um, for some folks, this might be a little early for holiday shopping, but these always sell out and they make such a good geeky gift. There are 24 compartments filled with TTRPG-themed surprises. Four full sets of dice from the beautiful selection Leah curates, an illustrated one-shot, and tons of other surprise presents that your loved one can enjoy opening every single day. We're so psyched because Leah made a special Willing and Fable coupon code for our listeners for the advent calendars, and she never puts them on sale. So use the code FABLEADVENT, that's F-A-B-L-E-A-D-V-E-N-T, no spaces, and you get $5 off the adventure calendar. And don't forget to shop the rest of Greenleaf Geek for other amazing presents for yourself and others, of course. Yourself. 
Mostly yourself. <laughs> <laughs> when you shop, use the code FABLE, that's F-A-B-L-E, for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. So again, thank you to our amazing patrons. Thank you to Greenleaf Geek and everyone who makes it possible for us to tell stories. Yes, thank you so much. And? If you want to support our show, you can buy the scariest looking book you can find at your local bookstore. Read it. And then tell us all about it. But no matter what, we're happy to have you here. Tell us about it only during the daytime. <laughs> I really just want to make people give us spooky book reports. You mean like we do most of the time? Uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, if someone wanted to give us a spooky book report or even just like a light review, I would be so up for it. Mm -hmm. Same. Absolutely. Of course. So what is your, I think, actually non-spooky book report this week? Yes. My book report this week is not spooky at all. I am covering Nana Buluku, also known as Nana Buruku, Nana Buku, or Nanan Boklo. She is the female supreme being in the West African traditional religion of the Fawn people and the Ewe people. So she is this mother goddess supreme figure. I know nothing about her, and you've been pulling out these episodes where I know nothing and it's so fun because I'm basically an audience member at this yeah. point. I didn't know anything about her. I, I did some research on possible topics and her name came up a few times. And I was like, you know what? I don't know anything about West African religion, mythology. Let's change that. So I dove into this topic today. I think that's actually worth pointing out because we haven't said it outright in a while. This podcast 100% exists because we choose a thing we want to learn about, and then we share what we've learned. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's maybe easy for people to forget that we are learning and are yes. not experts, really, on right. anything in the world. I'm not an expert on the one and only language I speak. I'm not really an expert at walking. I run into things all the time. Like, there's no mm – -hmm. it's, it's all enthusiasm and reading. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. So we're going to learn about Nana Buluku today. She's also called Nana Buku among the Yoruba people and the Olisa Buluwa among Igbo people, but she's described differently among different groups with some actively worshipping her, while others don't worship her, but they do worship the gods that she birthed. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I know. It's, it, we'll get into the religion, but it's definitely a religion of hierarchies. Nana Buluku is said to have created the universe and given birth to the moon and the sun. The moon is known as the divine feminine spirit Mawu, and the sun is the divine masculine spirit Lisa. According to the Encyclopedia of African Religions, quote, The Vodun religion of the Fawn people has four overlapping elements. Public gods, personal or private gods, ancestral spirits, and magic or charms. In this traditional religion of West Africa, creation starts with a female supreme being called Nana Buluku, who gave birth to Mawu and Lisa and created the universe. End quote. So if it's a vote on religion, presumably, unless they are, are practicing differently, it is a religion that practices fetishism, like we talked about in our Haunted Dolls episode. Yes. And as you've talked about in your episode on Voodoo, this is where most of that comes from. Oh, Mm -hmm. Don't you just love it when the episodes connect? <laughs> I got so excited, and we'll dive into it. But this is the origin of a lot of things you see in other religions, especially in South America and the Caribbean. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. 
In many folk songs and tales that give an account of her story, Nana Buluku retired after her hard work and left the world in the hands of her twin children, Mawu and Lisa. To date, because of this account, many traditional societies fear and respect twins, especially those that come as a boy and a girl. Tracy, I fear and respect you. (laughs) Thank you. I I wish someone would. I've been saying it all these years. (laughs) (laughs) I mostly respect you. I only fear you when the anxiety is bad. (laughs) Okay, I can understand that. I fear and respect you, too. All right, so in the fawn belief, the feminine deity Mawu had to work with the trickster Legba and the snake Aido Huedo to create living beings, a method of creation that imbued the good, the bad, and a destiny for every creature, including human beings. The soul is called the Mawu Se, the Mawu within a person. And at first, Mawu made people out of clay, but after running short, she began to make them out of reused bodies. Hence, why we can see resemblances in different people. Oh, that's so cool. Isn't that so cool? Oh, I got so excited when I was reading about that. That's just such a good detail. And not one you see very often. No, it's always like clay. Clay is infinite or Mm -hmm. mud or, you know, usually earth something. Right. Also, let's talk about for a moment why humans all across the world have been so insistent that we come from the earth and the gods come from the sky. Well, yeah, and the same thing of uh, often the deity associated with the sun is male and Mm -hmm. the moon is female. There's so much in what you've said so far that resembles so many stories from around the world. Yes. It's – I find it so fascinating when I was researching this how many times I've seen similar concepts come up. But that was a really unique one, the idea that she reused bodies, which means certain people look more like each other. It's – just so visual it's so visual in Mm -hmm. like one sentence you can imagine this goddess creating people and the the moment that she runs out and how she figures it out oh i love mythology i do too so in fawn theology only by appeasing lesser deities and legba can one change their destiny because remember you are born with good bad and a destiny inside of you This appeasing requires rituals and offerings to the lesser gods and ancestral spirits who are believed to have the ability to do favors for the human beings. So you interact at different levels with the different gods, and they go all the way up to Mawu and Lisa as kind of these supreme beings. So we're going to move on and talk more about the Vodun religion itself. Vodun cosmology centers around the Vodun spirits and other elements of divine essence that govern the earth. These spirits form a hierarchy that ranges in power from major deities governing the forces of nature and human society to the small spirits of individual streams, trees, and rocks, as well as dozens of ethnic Vodun, defenders of certain clans, tribes, or nations. Again, this probably sounds similar to when you talked about in episode 11 on Baron Samadhi. Yeah, I mean, the truth of the history is that when people were taken from Africa and enslaved and brought to America, of course, they brought their religion with them. And Mm -hmm. these practices grew and some stayed the same and some changed and some stayed mostly the same with tweaks. So like the name Legba is familiar because Papa Mm -hmm. Legba exists in American Vodou or Vodun practices. Yeah, and we will dive into the impact that the transatlantic slave trade had on these religions. You're so prepared. Thank you. Oh, thanks. (laughs) So the Vodun are the center of religious life. Perceived similarities with Roman Catholic doctrines, 
such as the intercession of saints and angels, allowed Vodin to appear compatible with Catholicism and helped produce syncretic religions such as Haitian Vodou. Vodin represents a religious syncreticism, which is the blending of two or more religious belief systems into a new system, or the incorporation of beliefs from unrelated traditions into a religious tradition. This can occur for many reasons and happens quite commonly in areas where multiple religious traditions exist in proximity to each other and actively function in the culture. However, it can also occur when a culture is conquered and the conquerors bring their religious beliefs with them, but they do not succeed in entirely eradicating the old beliefs or especially the old practices. I think it's easy for Americans to forget, at least Americans kind of where we grew up, that like I mentioned talking about the fetish market in the Haunted Dolls episode, people would go to the market and shop for these fetish items for their personal practices regardless of their religion. It's specifically Mm -hmm. said in the article from The Guardian, regardless of their religion, because it is very possible to blend things from all sorts of belief systems into a community's practice or your own personal. And when you have a culture like American culture that's very indoctrinated in a religion that says, you know, no other gods before me, Mm -hmm. it's very easy to forget. And also, it is the presence of saints that causes a lot of people to say, no, Catholicism is polytheistic, not monotheistic. That's Mm -hmm. a big discussion. It is, because of the idea of idol worship. Adherents of Vodun also emphasize the importance of ancestor worship and hold that the spirits of the dead live side by side with the world of the living, each family of spirits having its own female priesthood, sometimes hereditary, when it's from mother to blood daughter. The queen mother is the first daughter of a matriarchal lineage of a family collective. She holds the right to lead the ceremonies incumbent to the clan, marriages, baptisms, and funerals. She is one of the most important members of the community. She will lead the women of the village when her family is the ruling one. Meanwhile, priestesses take part in the organization and the running of markets and are also responsible for their upkeep. This is vitally important because marketplaces are the focal point for gathering in social centers and communities. In the past, when the men of the villages would go to war, the queen mothers would lead prayer ceremonies in which all the women attended every morning to ensure the safe return of their menfolk. How cool is that? I know. I'm sitting here going, oh, if I like say how cool I think this is, it's probably going to sound saccharine. But <laughs> yeah. we live in a patriarchal society where it is so hard for so many women, especially women of color, to just get mm-hmm. basic respect. So sitting here hearing you say this, talking about mm-hmm. women's roles that are powerful but respected. It, I'm yes. just sitting here like, oh my god, that sounds amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. These women are the ones that lead and take charge and run the community, and it's a respected position, and it is passed down from mother to daughter. You so rarely see matriarchal anything in what we research. Yeah, yeah. The more modern it is, the more European... American, Mm -hmm. you you just don't see it as much. Pre-Christian religions, usually, you just have to go back a little further. Even then, it's hit or miss on how well the women are treated. really depends. But in this case, the high priestess is the woman chosen by the oracle to care for the convent. Priestesses, like priests, receive a calling from an oracle, which may come at any moment during their lives. 
They will then join their clan's convent to pursue spiritual instruction. It is also an oracle that will designate the future high priest and high priestess among the new recruits, establishing an order of succession within the convent. Only blood relatives were allowed in the family convent. Strangers were forbidden. In modern days, however, some family members enter what is described as the first circle of worship. Strangers are allowed to worship only the spirits of the standard pantheon. So it's pretty closed religious practice. That makes sense in the way that it's structured. Mm-hmm. And with it being so family-based, it makes a lot of sense. Patterns of Vodun worship follows various dialects, spirits, practices, songs, and rituals. The divine creator, variously called Mawu or Mahu, is a female being. She is an elder woman and usually a mother who is gentle and forgiving. She is also seen as the god who owns all other gods, and even if there is no temple made in her name, the people continue to pray to her, especially in times of distress. In one tradition, she bore seven children, the Vodun of the Earth, Vodun of Thunder, also associated with divine justice, the Vodun of the Sea, Vodun of Iron and War, Vodun of Agriculture and Forests, Vodun of Air, and finally, the Vodun of the Unpredictable. I feel like it went really clear-cut through most of those. I'm like, got it, Thunder, Earth, Justice, War, and then Unpredictable. I like that one. It feels like their way of making a mischief a little mischief fella? Yeah, I do too. It's Trace, it's clear cut. The clear cut thing is just no predictions allowed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Never let them know what you're doing. So let's talk about Mawu and Lisa. After creating the earth and all life and everything else on it, Nana Buluku became concerned that it might be too heavy, so she asked the primeval serpent Aido Huedo to curl up beneath the earth and thrust it up into the sky. When she asked Awe, a monkey she had also created, to help out and make some more animals out of clay, he boasted to the other animals and challenged Mawu. Gabadu, the first woman Mawu had created, saw all the chaos on earth and told her children to go out among the people and remind them that only Mawu can give Sekpoli, the breath of life. Gabadu instructed her daughter Minona to go out amongst the people and teach them about the use of palm kernels as omens from Mawu. When Awe, the arrogant monkey, climbed up to the heavens to try to show Mawu that he too could give life, he failed miserably. Mawu made him a bowl of porridge with the seed of death in it and reminded him that only she could give life, and she could also take it away. Oh! Yeah, it's pretty savage. That whole story is just women supporting women. It is, right? It starts out with her saying, Nana Buluku says, the world is too heavy. Let me give it to my kids. After I have a snake lifted up in the air, hey, monkey, why don't you go make other animals? And he got all arrogant. And then the first woman was like, okay, kids, go fix this. And then the monkey's like, I'm going to be even more arrogant. And Mawu was like, "Mm, actually, I'm going to give you the seed of death. The best part is, for me, it's a metaphor like build up other women because Mawu was like, I'm going to make a woman. I'm going to build her up literally mm-hmm. from the earth. And then she passed it along. It's yes. the gift that keeps on giving. Support other women. <laughs> yes. Feed monkeys the seed of death. Wait, that's not a part of the metaphor. <laughs> that's not what we're supposed to be learning. Yeah, that's Mawu. We'll let Mawu, Mawu handle that. But <laughs> you, your job is to support other women. It's ice cold. It's such a good move. <laughs> it is a good move. According to Oxford Reference, quote, Nana Buluku is the supreme god, and the divine couple Mawu and Lisa owe its existence to this archaic androgyny. It was she 
who prefabricated the universe, leaving her two successors the task of its completion. Tumawu, the woman, was given command of the night. To Lisa, the man, command of the day. Mawu, therefore, is the moon and inhabits the west, while Lisa is the sun and inhabits the east. At the time their respective domains were assigned to them, no children had yet been born to this pair. Though at night, the man was in the habit of having a rendezvous with the woman, and eventually she bore him offspring. This is why, when there is an eclipse, it is said that the celestial couple are engaged in lovemaking. End quote. Which again, such a fun story for why there are eclipses. Good for them. Truly. Pretty rare, though. Moon eclipse and sun eclipse are two different kinds. Still. Yeah. Sorry, Mawu and Lisa. Maybe maybe there's something about, like, a new moon or something. <laughs> I have to... We're just trying... We're, like, trying to give them more. We're like, come on, you guys. <laughs> Spice up your love life. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there's a, uh, a proverb of sorts that says, when Lisa punishes, Mawu forgives. Uh, he's definitely the, like, fiery passionate sun and she's the forgiving calm moon that is not how i experience womanhood personally yeah honestly not also how i experience day and night mm, does is night when your rage comes out yeah i guess i guess night is when it's i, I feel to me night feels harsher but it also depends like think about where this is happening this is happening on the western coast of africa so the sun being extremely hot and severe does make sense Yes, I have been known to say with great frequency, anything that could happen during the day could happen at night and be better. Yes, that is something I've heard you say many times. <laughs> Atlas Mythica writes that, quote, Mawu, among the Fawn of Dahomey, now Benin Republic, is the same spiritual principle or entity as Odu Dowa, also known as Olu Adawa, among the Nago and the Yoruba of Nigeria. So, this concept is not just for the Fawn people. It's amongst many different other types of groups. But like I said earlier, sometimes it's a little bit different with different names or different ways the hierarchy is structured. Sometimes you don't even worship Nanabuliku or Mawa. You would worship more of the lower rung deities and other ones you worship them directly. So let's get into the kind of complicated nature of Mawu and Lisa because you'll often see them described as Mawu Lisa as kind of one entity. That's because this is the supreme entity. It's seen as a complementary sexual pair that is merged into one force and is referred to as Mawu. That is God in a general sense among the Fawn of Dahomey and the Ewe of Ghana and Togo. Among the Fawn, the cult of Mawu Lisa was centered in Abome, the capital of the old kingdom of Dahomey. Mawu is depicted as an elder female figure in conjunction with Lisa, a younger male consort. Other complementary qualities are seen in them. For example, whereas Mawu is associated with the moon and is cool, gentle, and forgiving, Lisa is associated with the sun and is hot, fierce, and punitive. Sometimes, even their actions are complementary. In one mythic tradition, Mawu created the earth and then retired to the heavens. When she saw that things were not going well with men, she sent Lisa to make tools and clear the forest so that men could farm and live a civilized life. It's important to know that the duality of Mawu and Lisa is more important in their depiction than their sexuality. They are defined by their unity amidst duality more than their gender or sexuality. When Mawu and Lisa are seen separately, which they occasionally are, it's only Lisa who becomes a separate deity that is worshipped. Like all other Vodun, Lisa has shrines, priests, and priestesses, as well as rituals dedicated to him. Thus, the adepts of Lisa are known as Lisasi, wives of Lisa. 
Conversely, there is no separate Vodun called Mawu, who is worshipped and has shrines, priests and priestesses, and rituals dedicated to her. Really? Yeah. Okay. When the two are combined into one, it's sometimes called Mawu Lisa, but it's also very often just called Mawu. And that is recognized as the combination of the two. When split apart, Lisa gets his own identity, but Mawu is always the supreme being. Got it. And the supreme being is only in combo. Yes and no, because there isn't Mawu without Lisa. Got it. Okay. There are no Vodunsi, adepts of the Vodun, known as Mawusi. People do bear the name Mawusi among the Fawn, but it's pronounced differently as to mean all power belongs to Mawu. Hmm. Since Mawu Lisa is viewed as a two-in-one force, the entity then is known as Mawu, and it's all other Vodun or divinities who are worshipped as they are the ones who intervene for humans with Mawu, which is why, you, again, you see that hierarchy. If you scroll down a little bit, Rowan, I have a beautiful piece of art here by Cynthia St. James. It's a painting titled Mawu Lisa, Dual Deity of Creation. Oh, this is... Fantastic. So this is a modern piece of artwork, mm -hmm. and it is bright, rich colors. I want to say true colors. And by that, I mean I'm just making up phrases, apparently. But it, I mean, like, yeah. you cannot see the blending happening on the canvas or the digital art or what have you. It is like this space is this color fully saturated. And it mm -hmm. is a... The figure of Lisa, so masculine, looking looking at the figure of Mawu, feminine, and she has uh, what I would presume to be like a scarf tied up around her head, mm -hmm. and he has kind of a squared off at the top hat, and they are both dressed in these garments. They look like robes by the way they're flowing around the piece, but it could mm -hmm. just be this just flowing movement of them. It's very um, abstract piece for sure. Yeah, and... I really like – there are basically dozens and dozens of little differently colored shapes making up both of their garments, and it looks like they are both blending together and very separate beings. It's – It's good. The motion of this piece, like what causes you to move your eye around the space is is my favorite part personally. <laughs> it's really beautiful, and I love specifically the uh, Mawu's in front, and your eye trails along her figure to the back where Lisa is. Yeah, and she has kind of what could be arms that, like, clasp and flow in the middle, mm -hmm. or it could just be the gesture of her clothing on her. It's really intriguing. Yeah, if you want to see this, you can find it on our Instagram. So now that we've talked about Mawu, Lisa, and Nana Buluku, it is time for my original story this week. Amazing. I am primordial. I am nothing. I am everything. I am mother, I am father, I am life, and I am death. I was around before anything existed. I was there at the beginning, and I watched as the universe crashed into existence, clumsy and new, and I stood by and breathed in the stardust from their explosions. For millennia, I watched as each and every star was born, grew, lived, and died without ever knowing me. I was everywhere. I was everything. And I was alone. At first, the loneliness was a small, aching thing. It lived somewhere deep inside of me and rarely showed its face. 
But as time solidified itself into reality, I felt its effects weigh on me. Time was born after me, but it would control me as it did all other things, and so, gracious as I am, I bowed my head towards its power and let the waves of time crash over me as it does all things. But in doing so, I allowed that aching feeling to grow. Time feeds loneliness like a mother feeds her babe, and there's nothing so delicious or destructive in all the universe as the wear and tear of time on a soul. And so the ache inside me began to grow into this dull, throbbing thing. There was a need inside of me that I could not seem to fill, and what shocked me most of all is that it hurt. No longer was it a dull, distant feeling that I could ignore. Now it was a painful and angry need. Something clawing at my insides, demanding to be seen, commanding my undivided attention. I was beholden to this feeling, and there was nothing else in the world that mattered. It screamed at me. You are alone in this world. There is no one else like you in all of existence. You want for something you cannot possibly have, and yet the aching need for it is eating you alive. Time, it seemed, in her infinite and unknowable wisdom, had given me a gift and a curse. I was aware of the changing and malleable nature of the universe, but I was alone to experience its beauty. I trailed my hand across the dust and ice of a nebula, shaping and twisting the clouds into forms. I imagined all sorts of new creatures in this way, trailing stars in the shape of a horse or a tree or even a child. The universe was my symphony and I was merely the conductor. I lost myself in the music of it all, the push and the pull and the rhythm of the universe. Did you know that the universe has its own song? It lives and breathes and thrives to a rhythm that only few can hear. But it's out there, moving and changing and flowing to that ever-present beat. And that music is a cacophony of perfection. I moved in a daze, something inside of me taking control as my hands pushed and pulled and formed a new world into existence. It was not that I was out of control, but more that something else took control of me. I was a tool through which the universe put its plan into motion. I was the conduit for creation. And so it was, through me, that the universe gave birth to the sun and the moon. New and writhing and forming a shape all their own, I watched exhausted and elated as my children became real. My Mawu and my Lisa, my moon and my sun. With shaking hands, I reached out and touched their perfect faces. I would not change a single thing about them. They were the two most perfect things to ever exist in the universe. To look upon them was to feel the joy of a thousand stars burning in exhilaration at something new. That was the moment I realized that the overwhelming, aching need that once lived inside me had been replaced by a world-shattering sort of love. It was the kind of love that would burn down the sky just to keep my children warm for the night. The sort of universe-altering love that a parent has for their child. Even the stars envied what I had created. I held my children close to me, whispering to them the secrets of the universe. I laughed at their joy and I cried at their sadness. I taught them about life and death and all the things that happen in between. I gave them all the tools I had kissed them atop their perfect heads, 
and I sent them out into the world. I was always there, however, in the background ready with a kind word or a stern lecture if needed. But I had done my part. My role in this story was over. I was nothing, and then I became everything. And now it was my children's turn to become gods. And gods they became. I love what you did creating the voice of this god. In the horror genre, the way she operates in your story would liken her to like an eldritch horror, something Mm -hmm. that you cannot understand, that is unfathomable. But you presented it in this soft, loving way. Mm -hmm. And it's so intriguing to me, the fact that time was born after her and she allows it to affect her. And then she begins speaking in song, which, you know, is the art of time. Mm -hmm. You did such an excellent job. Thank you. I really, I struggled. I sat down and I was like, what am I going to write for this story? I can't figure out how I want to translate everything that I've learned. Do I do something modern? Do I do a story from her point of view? Do I do it from, do I retell a myth of Mawu and Lisa? How do I want to do this? And then the second I sat down, the words, I am primordial, I am everything, I was nothing, like all of that just flowed out. And from there, it was just like, she told her story through me. I it, Like the whole part of I was the conduit for creation just came from how I was feeling when writing that story. Because I know you and how you research and how you think about things, I can see the way everything that you've read affected the, the story you wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. I like opportunities where we get to try to understand the way a god might perceive the universe and mm-hmm. people based on what we know about their pantheon. That's especially intriguing to me. So I'm really glad yeah. that you did that, especially because, as you pointed out, so much of her existence, I guess, is like understanding her children. Right. I really wanted to capture the feeling of uh, how how loneliness can start so small and so unnoticed. And... As time goes on, it can grow into this painful thing that you, you can't ignore. And I wanted to, to capture that feeling and then also translate how um, the just the love that a parent has for their child and, a, and a, a fraction of it that I felt when my nephews were born and I just looked at them and was like, they are the most perfect things I've ever seen. And wanting to, because she is this mother supreme goddess, she is known as the one that created everything, wanting to really capture that undying love that translates from her all the way through to the people who worship her. Isn't that just the way of it? I think it could be phrased either way, depending on how you look at it, but either isn't that just how people create gods to interpret things, or isn't that just how people interact with the gods and based on what they need? Just trying to experience and understand our own humanity through these figures that are so much larger. Mm-hmm. Read it again. <laughs> <laughs> Tracy's like, absolutely not. No. I Absolutely not. You can hit rewind and listen to it again. Uh, so we're going to move on to America and talk about how this religion came over to South America. Nanabuluku is well represented in the Caribbean islands, Haiti and Suriname. After surviving the Atlantic slave trade and passing from generation to generation among enslaved people who were taken there. She's also very present in South American communities such as Cuban Santeria and in Brazil, 
where she celebrated as Nana in Brazilian Candomblé, where her image still remains as a very old woman and the mother of creation. Candomblé is the result of African and Brazilian cultures blending after the slave trade. It is still a very vibrant and thriving religious practice today. So I have a picture here for you, Rowan, of Nana Buluku as depicted in Candomblé. And this is pretty much how she's depicted in many, many images uh, in a very similar fashion to what you see here. Oh, okay. So there is a solid periwinkle background and this woman is standing just in the middle of a solid background and she's wearing this very highly decorated dress. So the first mm -hmm. layer is floral. It's white with the periwinkle flowers. And then the next kind of layer that goes midway down is these periwinkle and indigo and, and violet stripes. And then there's ribbons with bows. And then her top is a, a different floral pattern. And mm -hmm. she has a, I think maybe a bow on the back of a like hat. It has kind of the shape you'd think of with maybe like the top of a chef's hat in that it is fabric and mm -hmm. it is allowed to kind of like billow. Mm -hmm. And then Trace, do you know what she's holding in her hand? I don't. I I think it might be wheat or sugar cane, but I can't tell from yeah. this image. It's a bundle. It's golden. It's wrapped up and it's hooked at the end. And then she has these things on her forearms that like if she were going into battle, they'd be bracers, but I right, don't actually right. know what they are. <laughs> her in this shape of this kind of half moon shaped dress is very common and um her depiction is like an older woman a little bit um like she's not usually depicted as like a frail older woman it's very much like a very comforting motherly figure like mm -hmm. i just want to hug this woman you know she gives the best hugs she does look very huggable you know when huggable people clearly either purposefully or it's just like in them that they wear clothing that is also huggable mm-hmm mm-hmm <laughs> So let's take a look at how and why these cultures merged. And to do that, we need to look back at the transatlantic slave trade. The transatlantic slave trade was the longest, long-distanced forced movement of people in recorded history. From the 16th to the late 19th centuries, over 12 million, though some estimates run as high as 15 million, African men, women, and children were enslaved, transported to the Americas, and bought and sold primarily by European and Euro-American slaveholders as chattel property used for their labor and skills. According to the UN, quote, the Caribbean was at the core of the crime against humanity induced by the transatlantic slave trade and slavery. Some 40% of enslaved Africans were shipped to the Caribbean islands, which in the 17th century surpassed Portuguese Brazil as the principal market for enslaved labor. The sugar plantations of the region, owned and operated primarily by English, French, Dutch, and Spanish, and Danish colonists, consumed black life as quickly as it was imported. Critically, the Caribbean was where chattel slavery took its most extreme judicial form in the instrument known as the Slave Code, which was first instituted by the English in Barbados. Passed in 1661, this comprehensive law defined Africans as, quote, heathens and brutes not fit to be governed by the same law as Christians. The legislators proceeded to define Africans as non-human, a form of property to be owned by purchasers and their heirs forever. The slave code went viral across the Caribbean and ultimately became the model applied to slavery in the North American English colonies that would become the United States. End quote. Whenever we explore world religions, you and I always end up uncovering how 
beliefs moved around because Mm of war, famine, general human movement, and in this case, the slave trade. Mm -hmm. And it is so eye-opening to see the way that people interacted with their gods based on what they needed because of Mm -hmm. how poorly other people were treating them. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's really interesting to see how these cultures came and moved and how people clung on to the religion and the gods and, and translated that into a, a new form of communicating that experience once they got to the Caribbean islands. Especially when religions are forced to become secretive. As you pointed out earlier, Vodun practices often could blend or operate under the radar in Catholic societies because it was Mm -hmm. easy to say, oh, well, it's really just this Catholic saint. And we see that um, sometimes in Irish cultures. We talked about it in our brownie episode, I think, just a little Mm -hmm. bit. But when people need to make their own religious practices covert, it is just one small piece of how people need to bury their own identities. Yes, absolutely. And and to see it power through and come out the other side where they're enabled to bring those religions back to life, I think is something we're seeing a lot more. And, and it's it's good to see that not everything has been lost. Yeah, it's generational. And mm-hmm. learning about a religion that is fundamentally based in generational practice, seeing how entire generations of people were murdered and then how that practice A, not only continues to exist, but has adapted to modern – the modern world is just Mm – I hate to say a testament to human endurance because that – it's just such a pathetic sentence for what actually had to happen. I get the mentality behind it. And I also understand the feeling of it doesn't capture the the horror that occurred for them to have endured. There there just aren't words for it. But the the sentiment of – the religion surviving through that and coming out the other side and people still getting to embrace their culture and their heritage is is something that's really, you know, it's a small n- good thing amongst a the greatest tragedy imaginable. It's especially interesting hearing you talk about this, what you've learned while I am also reading a lot about the way – Americans over extended periods of time have willingly sacrificed their own personal beliefs to kind of take Mm. on the larger identity of what is American and what is American is fundamentally white, male, and Christian. And the dichotomy of being forced to sacrifice what you believe and choosing, I don't want to, either willingly or unwillingly kind of Mm -hmm. adopting or casting aside is is very frustrating in similar and distinctly different ways. Yes. So estimates vary widely, but most scholars agree that Native Caribbean populations exceeded several million before contact and declined rapidly, perhaps as much as 90% in some places within the first century after European arrival. 90% in 100 years. Mm -hmm. Yes. Horrible. Warfare accounted for some of this decline, but the primary cause was the unintentional introduction of pathogens like influenza and smallpox, to name only two. So facing an insufficient indigenous labor supply, Europeans began to import African laborers through the transatlantic slave trade. A significant African-descended population is another feature of the Caribbean. 
Over the long course of the slave trade, slave merchants delivered more than 4 million Africans to the Caribbean. These populations led the growth of multiracial societies in the region, many of which have hybrid African-European indigenous cultural traits. Now, Rowan, I can't put it any better than they do, so I'm going to go on with another quote from the same UN article. It's funny, I was thinking that the person who wrote it did a really great job laying it all out in the previous quote. It was a really good article, and this quote in particular dives into the lasting impacts of the slave trade that is still felt in the Caribbean today. Quote, There are concerns regarding the standard markers of economic underdevelopment, such as widespread illiteracy, endemic hunger, systemic child abuse, inadequate public health facilities, primitive communications infrastructure, widespread slum dwelling, and chronically low enrollment and student performance at all levels of the education system. The Caribbean has the lowest youth enrollment in higher education in the hemisphere, an indication of the hostility to popular education under colonialism that is resilient in recent public policy. Extreme social and racial inequality is a legacy of slavery in the region that continues to haunt and hinder the development efforts of regional and global institutions. Colonialism has persisted for over a century after the ending of formal slavery, leaving black communities to deal with economic despair and the emerging political class to clean up the inherited colonial disarray. Black slavery was a modern form of racial plunder, and the obvious consequences of this economic extraction are seen in structural underdevelopment. The Caribbean is home to some of the most economically and socially exploited people of modernity. Before the arrival and devastation of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Caribbean region was buckling under the strain of proliferating chronic, non-communicable diseases. The rate of increase in the occurrence of type 2 diabetes and hypertension within the adult population mostly people of African descent, was galloping. This other pandemic is discussed in terms of the racist culture of colonialism, in which the black population is generally considered addicted to foods containing high levels of sugar and salt. It is frequently observed that 60% of the black population in the region over the age of 60 years is afflicted with type 2 diabetes and hypertension. Jamaica and Barbados, the two historic giants of plantation sugar production and slavery, now struggle to avoid amputations that are often necessitated by medical complications resulting from uncontrolled management of these diseases. It is for these and related reasons that the Caribbean has emerged as an epicenter of the global repertory justice movement. Its campaign for reparations for the crimes of slavery and colonialism has served as a template for the global South in seeking a level playing field for development within the international economic order, end quote. It's wild to me that you just mentioned diabetes and hypertension because Mm -hmm. I was just listening to a documentary where they were talking about communities that have in their history, racial groups at one point in their history have Mm -hmm. experienced famine or starvation. So it could be like the Irish potato famine was one example that they used Right. And how that related to colonialism, Um, not specifically the Caribbean, but locations like this. Now, generations later, the children that were born during this time, their bodies adapted to deal with famine and their children's children and on and on and on. And now when there is no famine, they develop these diseases because even still their bodies are adapted to deal with famine. And that is why craving things like sugar and salt is especially insidious because for generations, your body is saying, 
we are going to starve. Like you have to give mm-hmm. me these things now. And that's yeah. a very physical example of generational trauma. Absolutely. There's the other side of it too. Sugary, salty foods are cheap. Cheap. They're so cheap. They're easy to make. McDonald's is cheap. The fast food that you get at the grocery store, the fat, like it's all so much cheaper, so much more affordable to eat healthy, to eat organic, to eat in whatever way that dietitians will say is the most healthy. It's expensive. It's really expensive. And it's not even always available to everyone, let alone affordable. So the combination of those, of course, you're leaving these people with nowhere to go for help. And then you have poor medical infrastructure. So when they need the help, they can't get it. It's just it's systemically putting them down. Well, it's it's a food swamp, what they're describing, mm-hmm. and that's a term – so a lot of people know what a food desert is. It's an area where you can't find healthy, nutritious food, let alone often any food um, right. that is easy to get in the way you can just pop over to the grocery store. Um, a food swamp is an area where only unhealthy foods are available and or affordable. So very often mm-hmm. you're in – affluent gentrified communities in the U.S. and you see Whole Foods and you see Sprouts and kind of all these places that are known for having very nutritious fruits, vegetables, your classic food pyramid. Mm -hmm. And then you go to areas that are more impoverished or less developed, usually statistically black, Latino, Mm -hmm. that have easy access only to very processed foods. Absolutely. And not to mention the inherent assumption that you have the time to cook the healthy foods. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have to work two or three jobs just to survive. You're not also going to then take an hour, two hours every night just to cook a very healthy meal for you and your family when you can put something in the oven for 30 minutes and have food for everyone. It's just the most realistic option. And it's not a laziness thing by any means. It is a time management thing trying to get by and that's missed a lot when you see a lot of the, like, white influencers, like, here's my 5 to 9 before my 9 to 5, my healthy lifestyle, healthy this. Like, that is a privilege that you get to have that. And recognizing that you have the time to do that and that time doesn't have to translate directly into dollars because of your circumstances. Yeah, I think social media like Instagram really tries to ascribe this morality to food that is, like, mm-hmm. what – Mm-hmm. Should make you feel guilty. What should not? There is no morality like that be- between one food and the next. In that you should feel guilty for having a cookie. That is not no, how food not works. That is not what morality is. There is a lot of morality that is put on food when people try to say that the infrastructure that keeps people poor. Mm-hmm. I can't I don't know if you and I just talk about this all the time off podcast or if we talk about it all the time on podcast. I can't discern anymore. <laughs> like you, I truly you I can't either. <laughs> always talking. Because we're always almost always talking over a video screen anyway. So it's like, what was what were we recording when that video screen was on or weren't we? I don't remember. <laughs> I'm glad that you brought this up. It's so frustrating to see this these effects are so long term in that it's spanning generations, and yet it hasn't been that long. And no, living in both of those realities at the same time is not as mind-bending as it should be, maybe. Right. And uh, whenever people talk about specifically sugar and mm-hmm. the slave trade, I always think of the Shelleys, as in Mary Shelley of Frankenstein fame, 
and how they gave up eating sugar because, you know, they mm-hmm. said this is immoral food morality, slavery. Think about that one. That This is immoral. We shouldn't be supporting this. And everyone in their community, affluent, British, laughed at them, scoffed. Right. Said it was a ridiculous behavior. And for some reason that always sticks into my mind because that isn't, I think, the only example I have of a figure that I feel like I know from mm-hmm. history acknowledging the way that specifically sugar, but capitalism, affected the slave trade and how, that they were responsible for it on a daily level. Yes. It, it, in real time, having that reaction is so rare in, in the moment, in the history. Or perhaps I, I just don't encounter it, but I think of that all the time. Yeah. So if you want to learn more about everything we just talked about, you can check out the UN article in our show notes titled The Legacy of Slavery in the Caribbean and the Journey Towards Justice. Rowan, the last thing I have for you here is an image from the Ark of Return, the permanent memorial honoring the victims of slavery in the transatlantic slave trade located at the UN headquarters in New York. It was put up in March of 2015. Oh, interesting. Do you have any idea how big this is? No, I couldn't find details. I imagine it's on a big wall. It's what okay. it, it looks like it's on a big marble wall when you walk in. So it's top looking down blueprint style of a ship shape. So you know you're looking mm-hmm. at the interior and it is the relief carvings into the marble of human bodies. Just every single possible space that could be filled is filled with people just laying end to end. Mm-hmm. It's really haunting. It's really impactful, and it is technically such a simple image in that it doesn't have very many parts and pieces, but it's it does the trick. Yes, yeah, so this image as well will be on our Instagram if you want to get a good look at it. So knowing what you know about mythology being like 91 episodes in mm-hmm. and you and I having these discussions and being able to point to episodes where we've touched on these topics and point to other world religions that have similarities. Can you talk about how frustrating it was for you to try to research this and get information? Because you and I talked multiple times about this specifically. I was really concerned at one point I would have to scrap this episode because I just could not get enough information. And then I got very indignant because that's exactly the kind of episode that I want to do, one where there isn't a lot of information and and put that information out into the world. So there was no way I was going to scrap this episode, but I did want to figure out how I can get enough information and accurate information to everyone. And Rowan, poor Rowan had to listen to me rant and rave because I searched in every way I knew how to find information about Vodun and Nana Buluku and Mawu and Lisa specifically. They were the ones I really wanted to focus on. And it's that example we see when we talk about myths of color where there's one source of information and every other website has just copied and pasted that one source of information. That unfortunate reality where there is even less information than you were able to find for this episode has stopped us dozens and dozens of times from being able to do episodes. And sometimes that's why we cover multiple topics in an episode. Mm -hmm. It's There are a lot of closed practices in the world where people have every right to keep their practice closed. There are so many people in the world working to put information out about the smallest handful of religious groups, Mm -hmm. uh, community, all of that. 
I I just want to grab experts and be like, hey, could you just please write an article so that we can know what you know, so yes. we can, so everyone can just have an idea because over the course of these ninety odd episodes, you and I have learn so much our opinions on things have changed our mm -hmm. understanding of things have changed and it's it's just research mm -hmm. oh. it's, <laughs> it was deeply frustrating having to just dive and change up the way i was searching and search in different terms and look through different ways and try and figure out what was real versus what was just so many of like people's personal blogs were popping mm. up for this and as much as I would love to pull information from them, I just couldn't verify the writer. And I'm not trying to present to everyone things that are wrong. Obviously, we get things wrong all the time. But we do our best to find reliable sources. And there was just not a lot of information for this episode. People just weren't interested in diving into it. Meanwhile, you type in a Greek god and you get 958,000 results. <laughs> yeah, the big joke is when we say we have a mythology podcast and people think it's only about the Greek gods because people think mythology only applies to the mm -hmm. Greek and Roman pantheons. Or when I say the phrase Christian mythology and people's head spins around. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. And you and I talk a lot about personal blogs and how we utilize them and how on the one hand, it's very helpful to cite personal blogs in saying this is someone who practices this mm -hmm. and this is what information they put out about their personal experience versus those blogs that you just can't can't verify <laughs> i i get excited when we cover Vodun religions or religions that practice fetishism in general because mm -hmm. like for example we just talked about what fetishism really is for the first time a couple episodes ago and i was someone who for years only had the understanding of voodoo that right. Hollywood put out. Right. Because, um, you know, it didn't occur to me that it would be wrong. and it, it, Or the research that I got was not good because I didn't know how to look for it, really. Right. <laughs> and right. a myriad of reasons. Absolutely. It's what's fed to you. And if you don't have a reason to look into it further then you don't always look into it further. That's what we're constantly learning. And it's it's really – we've said on this show before that we're always surprised by what is and isn't easy to cover. <laughs> <laughs> and I truly, with how many times Nana Buluku came up when I was looking up different deities that I could cover, I was specifically looking up different mother deities. I was really interested in finding a topic about that. And, and Nana Buluku came up all the time as this is a very famous mother deity. And I thought, great, I can't wait to cover this. And then there was just nothing. It was just Nanabuluku is a mother deity. She gave birth to the sun and the moon. End of entry. Everywhere. Yeah, listicles. We love them for inspiration. Sometimes they're the bane of our existence. I do want to point out, um, because we're talking about ease of information in Hollywood, that Tracy and I are we're talking about how excited we are for this movie to come out. Um, the Woman King, which is the Viola Davis movie mm -hmm. that is coming out, and it's about the African female warriors, as it's often headlined, or the African Amazons. There are a lot of kind of names yeah. mm -hmm. that are thrown around. I think I might pronounce this incorrectly, um, but it is the women of the kingdom of Dahomey in the yeah, 1800s. which is what we had talked about in this episode. Exactly. So mm -hmm. there, this movie is, of course, a fictionalization of a very real historical event. So – 
historical fiction, the team behind it talks so much about the effort that they put into it. But do go see this movie. You all know Mm -hmm. that I'm deeply entrenched in Hollywood, but it is a fictional movie designed to get you excited and keep you entertained and engage you and pull on your heartstrings where people are trying their utmost to honor real history. And these women that they're depicting are the women who practice the religion that Tracy just talked about. So that is so cool. That did not exist five years ago. Not at all. So I'm really excited for that film to come out. And and Rowan and I plan to do a whole other episode on on that story and dive into that more. And the the stunt work is going to be so good, (laughs) y'all. I can't wait. I, listen, I'm, I'm obsessed with stunt work. I think it's so fascinating. There's a great documentary about stunt women that I watched on my flight to Portugal. It was amazing. The thing that I'm most excited about is Viola Davis is 56. You look a decade ago, long, I don't know, roughly, where like if you were over the age of, I don't know, 35, you just didn't weren't allowed to exist in Hollywood as a woman. Unless you were the, the kind mother figure. And Viola Davis in this movie is a woman who kicks ass literally yeah <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't have made it a, a few years ago it, and i'm excited about this i'm really excited about this movie aging is cool <laughs> aging is cool aging is good and it's a freaking privilege yes all right rowan yeah <laughs> so that was nanabuluku mawu and lisa and the story of the Voden religion of western africa now that i've covered all of that it is your turn to tell me something good My something good this week just arrived today. Um, I got myself a copper electric kettle. It's like stainless steel designed to look copper. But the reason that I like it so much, A, I need an electric kettle. I want to be able to heat up my water for tea and then walk away and know that it will turn itself off and I can have the hot water when I remember again in like 30 minutes. If it's on the stove, I get so stressed out. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I switched to an electric kettle forever ago. I use the fellow one. That's the one that I love. But what is is yours? I think mine's Hamilton Beach. Okay. I don't know. (laughs) It's beautiful. But the reason that I got a copper one is because Kaylee and I, uh, who both have conservatory training, um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's this rhyme that we both learned in acting school. And it's All I want is a proper cup of coffee made in a proper copper coffee pot. I may be off my dot, but I want a proper coffee in a proper copper coffee pot. Wow. (laughs) I think I may have added an extra word at the end, but that that is infused into my brain. And it's longer. And Kaylee and I will just say this to each other randomly at different points. So now every time I see this kettle, even in just the day, it makes me smile and think of like a, a goof and a gaff. With my friend. I love that. Yeah, buy stuff that makes you happy. (laughs) Oh, God, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So, Tracy, tell me something good. My something good is a book that I just read called The Stand-In by Lily Chu. It is a rom-com. You can predict absolutely every single beat that's (laughs) going to happen in the entire book. And I read the whole thing in a day and a half, and I loved it so much. And it just kicked off my love of, like, rom-com and romance books again it's just a very fun enjoyable rom-com like it is just the stand-in by lily chu got me through some long nights at work it was great can i quickly mention a book that kaylee just told me to pick up and i am it's boggling my brain how much i love it yeah i just started i'm listening to the audiobook because you all know i i constantly have an audiobook going um it's 
The Once and Future Witches. It's by Alex E. Harrow. Ooh. This book, it's... Uh, the premise is basically Salem, the witch trials happened, mm -hmm. Salem was burned to the ground, and now you're in New Salem. And it's post-industrial revolution, and it's this ag aggressively Puritan town, and instead of fairy tales, they're all called witch tales, mm -hmm. and all of the stories are slightly different. And in everyone, like, the bad person's always a witch, and they're all written by women, and if you know in those stories, there are spells. And it is about oh, that's these so cool. women trying to reclaim being witches and mm -hmm. also gain suffrage. It's bananas. That sounds really interesting. So both of these will be on our recommendations page on our website. Yay, we did it. Yeah. This was a delight. Thank you for doing the hard work. I got to hear you be frustrated a lot, which I always am happy to do. But it, <laughs> I am extra happy to hear that you, you, you'd you made this episode. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. It's been a delight to have you. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch. Or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. And it is still a very vibing... Vibing. 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 We are just vibing. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>